I'm James Brian Smith. Welcome to the Things Above podcast. You're listening to episode 43. This is a podcast for what we like to call Mind Discipleship. And every once in a while, we have a guest on the show, and we call those episodes Things Above Conversations. And this is one of those episodes. All right, so Jen Pollock, Michelle, you are here with me, and I am so excited you're on the Things Above podcast, having a Things Above conversation. And you have a new book, a book that I really, really like. I, I plowed through it because I loved it so much. It's called Surprised by Paradox, uh, The Promise of an And in an Either-Or World. So, Jen, I'm going to start out with a really basic question. Why did you write this book? I always find it interesting. I don't know if this is true for you, too, but I almost feel like I discover the reason at the end of writing the book. You know, you sometimes start writing a book and you don't exactly have the roadmap, right? You don't know where you're going and you don't even know exactly why you've set out. But I do say at the beginning of the book that, um, I mean, in some sense, the book did start in a counselor's office, you know, in a difficult relationship and just sort of feeling like I was at a dead end. And I went asking the counselor certain questions um, to kind of figure out how to continue to engage with a person that I think was pretty consistently dishonest with me and just, you know, I sort of went with the question, do I suffer the line, you know, and just kind of plow ahead with this person? Or do I sever the relationship? Like, is this actually not helping um, to just sort of pretend that nothing's wrong? And I and I went really with that kind of either or framework. And she sort of, um, in that first session, looked back at me and said, do you think there could be some other possibilities? And um, that sort of seems like an obvious um, answer. But I realized how often I really do look at the world in kind of that binary way of the either and the or. And I think culturally, that's also where we are so much, you know, when politically, you know, you're either this or for this or you're against that. And, you know, we just have these categories um, that we like to sort of slot ourselves into and other people into. And I think it's a real place of paralysis in our life with God. I think it doesn't allow God to be as creative, infinitely creative as he is in his nature. And so I say that it started in a counselor's office, but in some ways I think a lot of my work and curiosity really is sometimes to explore the mystery of God. You know, for as much as I want kind of easy, tidy answers um, in my spiritual life, I also really kind of revel in the fact that God's ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. And so this book is really an exploration of ways that the kind of the mind bending ways of God, where he um, embraces, like we have to embrace attention or something that feels really complex, like an irreducible tension. Um, in, in a particular kind of way of following him. So that's sort of a long answer to say, I feel like at now at the end of the book, now at, as I'm doing the work of like talking about the book, I'm like, oh, right. These are the reasons why I wrote the book. I, yeah. And I totally relate to that because, um, 
uh, well, I think of Stanley Hauerwas, who said, uh, by writing, I learn what I believe. And then um, uh, Flannery O'Connor said, I don't know what I believe until I write it. So uh, I, I think that there's something real to that as well, because I find the same thing. I start writing and it's not till I get to the end that I, oh, that's what I actually believe now. So <laughs> uh, I think probably our listeners may find that odd, but it is, I, unless you and I are just weird and everybody else is different, <laughs> I think uh, I think we're more uh, the rule and not the exception mm. for how that works. Well, the, uh, the title of the book, Surprised by Paradox, paradox is a big word. Mm. And so we're going to define it. Uh, by the way, I have a I have a corny joke if I if I if you don't mind. Corny jokes. I, I actually I have a doctorate yes. and I was getting a second doctorate. Are, <laughs> yeah, aren't they great? I, I was getting a second doctorate and a friend of mine, he said to me, "Are, are you getting a second doctorate so you can become a paradox?" <laughs> There's the 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 joke right there. So, I like it. Uh, so I can't see the word now and not and not think of that corny joke. But so a paradox is a big is a big word. And go ahead, let's go ahead and define it. How do you define paradox? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll actually tell my own little corny. It's not really a joke, but it's a story that somebody sent to me. Um, she was telling me about a friend who was a missionary and had come back from wherever, you know, she was serving abroad with her family. And um, one of the things that they did to sort of help the children talk about their experience of um, being overseas and then coming back to the United States was to actually talk about their yay feelings and their yuck feelings. And they actually had two ducks one that was like really clean. I think these were just like rubber ducks. Um, one that was really clean and one that was all like bandaged and bruised and sort of looked a little bit beaten up. And so that was that the, the bandaged bruised one was the yuck duck. And then the other, you know, pristine clean one was the yay duck. And they were talking to these missionary kids that, you know, it's okay to have both feelings when you return to the United States. You know, you may have some yay feelings about being back home. You may have some really yuck feelings about um, being back home too, and that's okay. And that's really what paradox is. It's, it's when we have a proposition of a both and, um, and that that both and doesn't initially seem to make sense. Um, so the dictionary definition of paradox um, is when we have to hold two truths that don't logically cohere with each other. They look to be at variance with one another. They look to be opposed. So, I mean, the easiest theological paradox is, um, well, I shouldn't say easy necessarily to understand, but easy to sort of make sense of paradox is the incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man, you know, that he, that God didn't, you know, make Jesus like half God, half man, or he didn't cease to be human, you know, the day that he died and was resurrected and then ascended into heaven, like he will continue to be fully God and fully human. And if we were to just apply the powers of reason to that, we couldn't really make sense of it, right? And so that's where paradox ends up leaving us with a, a, this irreducible tension of a both and. Um, so I think it's lovely, you know, to go back to the well, I, well the, what I forgot to tell you about the ducks, the yay duck and the yuck duck is that they called them the paradox. <laughs> so instead of paradox, you know, you I had a paradox. <laughs> 
And I think that's lovely. You know, I uh, think yes. it's, it's, isn't it beautiful to be able to say very simply to children, you can have both and kinds of feelings. You don't have to just feel one way. And there's a way that the paradox allow children to wrestle with their complex emotional life and just what it means to be human. And I think paradox allows us as followers of Jesus to say that the life of faith really does require us to hold things in tension, um, to admit that there's a lot of mystery to God and to the ways of the kingdom. Exactly right. So, okay, so for listeners, I think we've defined paradox pretty well. I mean, I think of it as something that seems self-contradictory mm. or you think, well, how can that be true if these these two things seem to go uh, against each other and yet mm. maybe somehow in the tension of it, there's a deeper truth. And yeah. so you mentioned, obviously, um, the incarnation is one. The Trinity is mm -hmm. clearly one, because how do you, how can God be three in one? So our faith right at the core is full of these paradoxes, mm -hmm. whether we like to admit it or not. And, um, and I think what I love about the book so much is that you're allowing us to just relax and say, mm -hmm. as you put it, that binary way of this has to be black and white. It has to be clean. Uh, no, it doesn't. And so, mm. so because I am controlling the interview, I'm going to, <laughs> uh, now I'm going to, to just ask you a little about the story of the Jehovah's Witness woman, your house mm. cleaner, and to say that I actually had a very similar experience mm. with not one, but two women who were Jehovah's Witnesses. And I ended up in a debate with them. Oh, wow. But that's another story. And maybe I'll tell that in, in but so I'm very familiar with, um, mm. and we're not to be critical of these, these uh, folks these lovely people who adhere to that faith, but hmm. the Jehovah's Witness faith is very clean and clear and that sort of thing. But share with us about that particular story, because you found yourself running into trying to understand your faith, but it wasn't as clean and easy in light of what she was sort of proselytizing you, yes. if you will. This was a young woman who um, actually was uh, my house cleaner, you know, essentially for a couple of years. And we built up a relationship. She actually was hard of hearing. Um, I mean, probably legally um, deaf and had a cochlear implant. And so our conversation and communication was a little bit was a little bit tricky. And then add to that, that we were often talking about things of faith. And I think, um, you know, she was telling me that she, how hard she'd been working to be baptized as a Jehovah's Witness. And she was so devout. And she would say things like, I just, I love Jehovah. And I, you know, could see her zeal and her devotion. And, and it was so admirable. Um, but when we would kind of get into long conversations about faith, of course, we found a ton of disagreement. And, um, what I realized is, you know, in digging in, into a little bit of the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses and talking to her is that essentially a group of people, you know, kind of went to the biblical teaching and, and just, yeah, uh, made everything a lot simpler than, um, than, you know, Orthodox faith would have it be. So for instance, Jesus is, you know, he's God, but he's not as God as God the Father, <laughs> you know, and the Holy Spirit, you know, there's no Trinity in the Jehovah's Witnesses. The Holy Spirit is um, just an impersonal force of God's will in the world. Um, there's no such thing as grace. You know, there's really only works in Jehovah's Witnesses. You have to prove your devotion and your zeal, which is why, of 
course she was spending so many years um, having to kind of check off all of the to-dos to prove herself, to kind of like earn her baptism. And so I think that that sort of reduces the paradox of grace as I see it in the Christian faith that um, yes, of course, God wants us to will and to work for his good pleasure, but he's at work in us to do that. And it's by his grace that we're able to do that. And so I realized that, you know, it was really hard to talk to her because she, in, in, in essence, it was like, you know, I kind of had it wrong, right? She had all the easy answers, and I had to sort of say, well, I guess I think it's a mystery. I think it's a paradox. You know, when you are left to kind of explain the incarnation and the Trinity and, um, you know, some of these irreducible mysteries and complexities of faith, you know, I sort of, I ended up feeling like the one on the defensive, like, how do I even explain this? It feels like I'm sort of making excuses. Um, but, you know, as I've learned more. You know, I think, you know, and I tell the story about G.K. Chesterton, paradox is the reason why he came back to Christian faith, why he essentially was was converted, because he said it's beautiful that Christianity has hospitality for paradox. There's something really intellectually satisfying about that, that we can we can hold things in tension. And as human beings, of course we want things simple and easy and tidy. And I think that's even a challenge for us as um as people who would call ourselves, you know, Bible-believing, Orthodox, traditional Christians, you know, we hold the historic Christian faith. We too want things easy. Um, I've wanted that. And this book is really so much about enlarging my imagination for what God's um, up to in the world, um, his ways in the world. Um, and and I think, I think you're right. The spirit of it is very much like just kind of take a chill pill, you know? Um, if you don't understand everything, that's okay. Yeah, I think so. It's, and that's what I really appreciate about the book and why I think the book's going to be so helpful for, for many Christians because, and, and just as a side note, I, I've been working for the past several years on beauty and mm. uh, I've been struck by just how important the role of beauty is in our faith and how absent it is from, from most of our understanding of the faith, because we just don't know what to do with beauty. But you talk about awe, A-W-E, and, uh, and, and beauty as a component of awe. Mm. And I really love that section of the book because there you were talking about, about how, uh, we have, we do have this longing for something bigger than us. And I think the black and white, while it's satisfying, as you're saying, and helps us just, okay, this makes easy sense to me. But yet there's something inside of us that wants something so much more. And, yeah. and I think we're really, we want that all. We want that beauty. And as, as you point out with Chesterton, uh, maybe maybe the only way we're going to find it is is if we have this kind of paradox. So mm. uh, what what is the role of awe or beauty in our formation, at least as you understand it, as you were writing the book? Yeah, you're probably thinking of 
the Atlantic study that I um, cite really early in the book, I was so struck by this. It was actually a study of studies, so kind of a compilation of a variety of different studies, just about how human beings experience awe and um, how that is a universal kind of human emotion, I guess if we want to call it an emotion, um, that we, whether we're religious or irreligious, um, I mean, you can be standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and feel an incredible awe, even if you don't recognize a creator. Um, you know, you could be standing in the middle of the Redwood Forest or just, you know, especially nature reminds us of our smallness, um, you know, in in light of the vastness of creation and nature and the beauty and the marvel of it. And um, I think the role of beauty, when I think about beauty and awe, I think there's, it really pushes against kind of our pragmatic, practical impulses and faith. So often I just want, I kind of want to know how, right? Like I, I go to God, like a life coach, like tell me what to do in this situation. Tell me how to raise my children. Tell me how to have a better marriage. Tell me how to make wise financial decisions. Tell me how to you know, live well in the world. And I think that's um, an amazing part of the Christian faith is that we have that wisdom and that practical know-how, but that's not everything. Um, you know, awe is like a very impractical, um, actually very Godward kind of response um, to just his vastness, his mystery. And it really is a, it's the response of worship. I think that we as Christians know awe as worship, where we stand under, you know, God's big sky, you know, where we kind of get a sense of our right, we right size ourselves. We are right sized, I should say, by a vision of God. You know, when Isaiah entered the throne room in the vision, he was struck by his smallness, by his sinfulness, you know, by his need for mercy and for grace. Um, he stood in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. You know, I think he was filled with awe and, and even the terror of awe. So I think beauty is this invitation. I love that you're doing work with that, Jim, because I have to say, I have to, I really need to learn more about that. Um, the more impractical kind of aspects of just being in God's presence, experiencing him as beautiful, um, completely apart from whatever he's doing in my life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing about, about beauty. And it's similar to what you're writing about in that we really can't control it. Mm. We, I mean, Thomas Aquinas define beauty as that, that which when seen pleases. Mm. And that's kind of a weak definition. It's like, come on, Tom, give me something more. <laughs> but it's, it's pretty, you know, it's good when it's that, which when I see it, I find it pleasing. Mm. And I don't know why, you know, like mm. I, you mentioned the Grand Canyon, or maybe it's a piece of music or an incredible um, poem. I mean, it can mm. be, it can be so many things. It can be, um, the beauty of a, of a loving relationship of an elderly elderly couple and you look and you mm -hmm. go that's so beautiful and you don't know why you're moved by it but you are yeah. and uh and i think that's i love what you said jen about worship because and i want to pause there for a moment and camp there a minute because if you think about it when we really worship it's only because we've encountered paradox mm -hmm. or beauty or awe this because we don't we're never moved to worship 
with the binary black and white easy answer. Yes. Like that never moves us to worship. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm thinking, for example, like if we had a hymn called Pretty Good Grace, it would be a lousy hymn. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it has to be, it's, it's, it's amazing grace. Like mm. I can't even comprehend this. And everybody loves that hymn because it's when we encounter, and you talk about grace in the book so well, that it's, grace is amazing. Mm. And that's why we sing. And that's why we're drawn into it. But let me, let me mm. pivot a little bit to what I think is kind of the theme, the theme verse or the, the central uh, touchstone of the book, which is First uh, Corinthians thirteen twelve, which is in the NRSV. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see face to face. Now I know only in part, then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. That that verse, I mean, it it runs throughout the book. So let's talk about that verse and its importance. Uh, if, for what you're trying to accomplish with this book and help us to understand. Mm. It's interesting. I <clears throat> recently was in conversation with somebody who is um, getting ready to publish a review of the book. And very kindly, he said, you know, I, I just want, I'd love for you to read it and see if you think that I um, accurately convey what the book is trying to convey. And one of the things that he was pushing back on a little bit, and it was a, it was a kind and generous review, but one of the things he said was, you know, that in post kind of modern, in postmodern culture, we, um, we don't value certainty. We think we can't have certainty about anything. And he said, I feel like as Christians, we really need to sort of push back on that. And I, and I don't think he was saying that my book was saying, um, was arguing against certainty, but I think to your point, I think that 1 Corinthians 13 is reminding us that even the certainty that we think we have, um, we have to recognize that our knowledge is a dim knowledge and a partial knowledge. Um, and as it's interesting because I was actually even just talking to one of my children about this because they had a recent discussion in youth group and... Um, not that the particular kind of question that they were talking about is is relevant, but and and she was coming back to me like, what do you think about that? And I said, well, I just don't really know. I don't. And she said, well, how could you not know? You know. And I said because the Bible doesn't, you know, doesn't lay out um, every, you know, it doesn't it doesn't give us certainty on absolutely everything. I'm 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 100 certain that Jesus raised from the dead. Um, and that he's coming again. I don't think we can equivocate on those kinds of things, but gosh, there's a lot of other stuff that I just really don't know. And I think that sometimes we're afraid to say that as people of faith. Like, does that mean that I don't have faith? Does that mean that I don't believe the Bible? Does that mean that um, I'm just sort of capitulating to like postmodern culture? (laughs) And I think, no, I think we're just actually agreeing with Apostle Paul. I, I personally... I want to have a both and faith that is both like incredibly courageous in terms of witness. Like I want to live in my city and I want to, and I want to tell the world that Jesus has, um, he's coming again, you know, and that he wants people to follow him and to know him, that, that, that he's been on a rescue mission. I want to, I want to like have so much courage and certainty about that. Um, and I want to have an incredible amount of humility for the things that I just don't know that I, that I have only partial knowledge about. And that would be things like the denominational, you know, denominational differences, for example, I don't know 
with 100% certainty what if you should baptize your children or if you should only baptize believers, you know, who make a confession of faith. I happen to be in a tradition that baptizes infants. I think there's a plausible case for that. Am I going to like die, you know, to say that I'm 100% certain about, you know, die on a hill to say that I'm 100% certain about that? No, I'm not. And I think as Christians um, who want to bear a really compelling witness in the world, we have to have that both and faith. Let's be certain about the things we can be certain about. Um, and let's bear that certitude with humility. Let's also bear our partial knowledge with humility too. Um, humility in all things, you know, the cer- certainty and uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think about, and you mentioned the word orthodox, orthodoxy, and and you know, technically that means right faith or right mm-hmm. worship, that we, we understand things in a right way. Um, but I think about our Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. at least the theologians, who helped us a great deal, helped me anyway, when they talk about the difference between apophatic and cataphatic mm. theology, because apophatic refers to the mystery of what we don't know. Like we, every, th- what they say is that everything you can say about God, you, you can say the opposite, like, because you don't know. Mm-hmm. So apophatic theology is you don't actually know anything about God. But then cataphatic, K-A-T-A-phatic, comes back and says, yeah, but there are things we can know. Mm. And I just love the, I think about that often. I thought about it as I was reading your book that that uh, there's this mystery that says, yeah, I can't really fully know this, and yet I can, right? Mm. So there's the apophatic, the negative side, but then there's the, the apophatic positive, yes, I can. And I agree with you about the resurrection and and think, yeah, because I will go on, I will die on the hill for the resurrection because- mm. Christ has moved in my life in very real ways, and yet I don't understand the resurrection. Like I don't know how. Yeah. I, I know it says by the by the power of the Father Jesus was raised, but like technically I don't know how that happened. Mm. And you know we're just coming off the Easter. Well, we're in Easter tide actually right now in our church, so we're reading resurrection stories. And I'd still go, I don't know how he did that. Like the 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 grave cloths were neatly folded, and yeah. he was gone, and then he had a body that could walk through a wall. <laughs> and yet he ate fish on the beach. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a paradox. Like I can't fully grasp even even that. And I'm okay with that. Mm. And I and I love that about about what you're doing with the book in general. But let me let me read a quote from page 23. You, you quote John Murray, who writes about orthodoxy, and he says that that right or correct faith faith plays the role of conjunction, not either or, but and. And that's in the subtitle of the book, right? The the promise of mm-hmm. and in an either or world. Share with people who are listening about the importance of that tiny little but important word A N D and. Yeah. I think again, it just goes back to being human. We really like our eithers and our ors, right? Those are the things that make sense to us, like categorizing things um, as simply and as rationally as we can, and is where God is asking us to hold things together. You know, so the incarnation, I talk about God isn't just the great I am, he's the great I and. He actually, when you think about it, it is such an incredible mystery that God 
of all the ways that he probably could have um, rescued humanity, and I could, wow, we could wade, wade into some deep theological waters there. So people would probably say the incarnation is the only way, right, that he could um, rescue humanity. And I think I do believe that. But I think it's not the way we would necessarily do it. Um, God embraced contradiction in his own being. He took up a body and yet remained God, and God submitted himself to death. These are things that just blow apart our categories. And so I just think for me, it's been an important spiritual practice to kind of start to be aware of the times when I just easily retreat to kind of an either or kind of framework. Sometimes it's in prayer, you know, it's God, do you want me to do this or do you want me to do that? And sometimes it's like, I, I don't want, I have way more possibilities than you've even just proposed. I mean, I think about when years ago when I was praying about, we had three children and I was always just curious, like, are we going to have more children? I don't know. God, you know, just tell me, are we either, you know, either we're going to have more children and that's going to be great. And I'm going to just prepare myself for that or we're not. And that's fine too. And I'm going to move on and pursue some other, you know, maybe dreams and ambitions. And I never got an answer. I never got, yes, you're going to have, you know, twins in three more years, which is actually what ended up happening. Like God had a, 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 an ending or not even an ending. Like he had another chapter in the story that I hadn't even imagined. And I really do feel like the life of faith is so often an act of imagining, you know, imagining the expansiveness of God's invitations in the world. And, and so often when we kind of have the either or framework, it's almost like our imagination is constricted. And to take up the and is to kind of blow apart, like, God, I probably don't even imagine you know, I haven't even been able to ask or imagine what you could be doing in this situation. For example, like to even just to return to the broken relationship, family relationship that took me to the counselor's office. I mean, God's been inviting me to continue in that relationship, um, but in ways that I, I, I don't think I thought possible, you know, to really maintain an and kind of posture, like, yes, I'm fully committed to you. And I want you to be the healthiest version of you possible. And I think these are healthy ways of relating to another person, you know, namely just being honest with them. Um, but I'm sticking with you. And so, and, you know, and is a way that even I just think about my own calling and I think a way that we can think about our calling. So often I have been afraid to do things, um, to maybe to risk towards certain desires, um, for calling. Cause I'm just, don't trust myself. I've kind of thought like, I'm not very reliable. <laughs> I'm, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. Like I know that to be true of myself and I sometimes don't trust myself, um, to move towards certain invitations. Like I don't even, I mistrust that the invitations are even from God. I, I feel pretty convinced a lot of times that I would just talk myself into certain things for my own vanity's sake. And I've been able to just even embrace an and in terms of calling, like I am corrupt and I am called, 
You know, we all are. We all are called to participate in the kingdom of God. And that, that's not because we're great. <laughs> no, we're actually, we can't, we can't fully rely upon ourselves. Um, we can't rely upon ourselves at all. We have to rely upon the Holy Spirit. But just because we're prone to pride, to vanity, to acedia, to laziness, um, to selfishness, um, that doesn't mean that we're not also called um, to participate with God in his kingdom. In fact, it's kind of when we move toward God and that promise that he's, and I've already mentioned this verse because it just is, it's meant so much to me that God's at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the paradox of calling, isn't it? Um, that I will will and work for God's good pleasure because God's at work in me. Absolutely. And I, I so that resonates with me because I, I recognize that, uh, I, I know my own brokenness and depravity, mm. and yet for some strange reason, God continues to use me. Mm. And I was good friends for years with Rich Mullins, who mm. wrote these incredibly beautiful songs, and yet he was a person he would tell you himself, his own brokenness. And Brennan mm. Manning was a dear friend, and his books are profound, and yet Brennan was clearly broken as well. So there is that paradox of yeah. uh, we are God's beloved, and yet we're broken. Mm. God uses us and that sort of thing, and it's a wonderful thing that God continues to, to do that. And, uh, and, uh, I have a hard time believing that you're sinful and broken, Jen, cause you just seem perfect. Um, oh my goodness. and I, I, I I'm just going to stick with that <laughs> because, uh, you just seem so lovely and kind and you're a great mom and, and all that stuff. So is it okay if I continue to just, to just think you're perfect and, and, uh, and we'll just live with that? I, you know, I feel like I should just tell you about I should tell you about the customer service call that I had last week with the phone company. Uh-oh. I've I've worried a little bit that the transcripts or the audio for those conversations will be released and everyone will know um, beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am broken and depraved. Okay. <laughs> well, there are moments, and I think when we have technical issues in our lives, they do bring us to our worst, but... Well, Jen, this has been fantastic. I've loved talking about the book. It's it is great. So, I recommend it highly to our our listeners. Surprised by paradox: the promise of and in an either or world by Jen Pollock Michelle. And I want to say this: that uh, I felt like our conversation was really good. I communicated with you well, even though you're Canadian, um, it, and even with that that cultural barrier uh, between us, I felt like we really we really connected. Uh, and you didn't say A once, as far as I know. But can you say A for our listeners so we know how you say it up there? Well, <laughs> technically, I am American living in Can an American living in Canada, um, but I have lived here for eight years, and that's so wonderful, isn't it? A. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> she did it. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this Things Above conversation with Jen Pollock, Michelle. And if so, please share it with a friend. You can also subscribe, which means you'll get them automatically each week. I hope you join me next week for episode 44. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. My hope, as always, is that if you're asked what's on your mind, you'll say things above. <laughs>